0: would open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is on the right hand side of your Bible. It is a New Testament letter. I'll explain it in just a second. My name is Jordan. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor. Bethany and I have been here uh, seven, almost eight years. Um, I grew up in Monmouth, Illinois, which is uh, kind of north, um, the, the, the top of uh, Illinois, not like Chicago-ish, a little bit farther down. My dad pastored a church for a long time, a um, little church called Countryside Bible Church, and it was in the middle of a cornfield, and he was there for 20, about 28 years, and uh, agriculture's kind of always been uh, around me as a kid, uh, but I never really knew anything about it. I had to rather rollerblade and um, look at girls, so kind of where I lived at in my youth. Um, And then the older I got, uh, I I left, um, I went to Davenport, Iowa for a year and uh, learned a little bit more about the world and what it had to offer, and there was nothing really there. And then I I went to Grace College, which um, is in Winona Lake. Uh, I fell in love with Bethany. She fell in love with me about two years after that. (laughs) And then... um, and we got married, we spent four years in St. Louis, and then we came here um, to a church that's in the middle of a cornfield. And I never really had any really desire to learn about agriculture or anything like that, but the more I read in scripture about agriculture, the more there are parallels uh, with what the text says in regards to what farmers encounter on an everyday basis. And so I was studying for the book of Ephesians, and there was an illustration that I came across, and it said that God's grace is like standing underneath of a grain bin. I thought to myself, that doesn't make any sense. How do you stand underneath a grain bin? Like, I'm not dumb, right? I know that grain bins can't be moved. They're huge, right? So how do you stand under a grain bin? So I called one of our farmers, I said, hey, uh, Coleman, that's not his real name, I said, can you um, give me a tour of kind of what you do? And he's like, I guess. Come on out, you know. And so I came out in dress shoes and dress pants and a dress shirt. And he's like, what are you doing? And he was gracious with me. And I said, this is the illustration. The illustration was about standing underneath of a grain bin. I said, that's impossible, right? And he's like, yeah, that's, that's hard to do, brother. And I said, okay, so walk me through it. So he takes me to the farm, and he shows me these grain bins. And it's amazing. The more I learn about agriculture and farmers, the more parallels there are in the Bible, because these grain bins are huge. I mean, tons and tons and tons of grain or wheat or, or stuff from the harvest is put into these grain bins, and they have to get whatever is put into that grain bin out. And that was what I was trying to, to discover, was how do you get all that grain out? Well, there's, there's a couple of ways. There's Um, these holes that are in the grain bins. Now, some of you are sitting there thinking to yourself, duh, okay, hold on, this is for the rest of us, (laughs) all right, this morning, okay, so there's these holes there, because some of us are enlightened right now, we're like, I've always wanted to know that. I'll preach on the Bible just a second, okay, but there's these holes in the middle, and then There's sometimes a hole, like, by the edge of the wall, too, and there's an auger that's on the bottom, and then they start up that auger with an engine, and then essentially it pulls all the grain or wheat or whatever's in that bin out, and then it it shoots it out. And I was like, well, that doesn't really line up with what I'm trying to say, you know, because I said, I want to know how you can get buried under the grain. (laughs) He's like, oh, watch this, all right? So there's these shoots off on the side of some of the grain bins because farmers need to get the grain out of the bin as fast as possible, right? Like they, they want it out as fast as possible because a truck will come in and they're like, we're going to dump into that truck and the sooner we can dump into that truck, the sooner he can take it off um, and sell it and then the sooner we can make money and the sooner we make money, we can give to the church. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, that makes total sense. I get that. I threw in the give to the church part. So, um, so I said, okay, so how do you get it in the truck? Well, there's these chutes, right? and there's a chain on the chute, and he's explaining to me that once that grain bin is full, you can take like this, this it's, it's a rope or usually a chain, and you pull on the chain, and there's these things called windows within there. And the farmer's got these crazy technology, you know, like his windows, and I'm like, what's a window? And he's like, essentially, it's just like this thing that blocks like the grain from coming out and just moves. I'm like, oh guys are tech savvy man okay so he says you pull that chain and essentially the grain will like shoot out so in my mind I'm like what happens if I stand underneath the chute and he's like oh man you get buried I'm like how fast would I get buried he's like like seconds man he's like I could cover you in grain in in a matter of moments I was like that's awesome he's like why is that awesome I was like because that's God's grace I was like if you You don't stand underneath the grain bin. Essentially what happens is the grain bin is a representation of what God has to give to us. And we have a choice on where we stand. Either we stand away from God or we stand underneath that chute and we allow the grain to pour down on our head and we get buried in his grace. And we have an opportunity as humanity to pull that lever or to just stay there and to let him lavish on us what the Bible says, all of these gifts of grace that he has given to us. That's Ephesians in a nutshell. Paul is going to write to the Ephesian church and he's going to talk about God's grace. So if you go into Ephesians chapter 1... Now, the crazy thing is, I don't know where you're at in, like, your translation or what kind of Bible you read out of, whether that's ESV or um, NIV or King James Version, it doesn't matter. In the original Greek, the Bible was written originally in Greek, okay? There are two sentences that encompass the entire chapter 1 of Ephesians. So verse 1 through 14 is one sentence, And then verse 15 all the way through is another sentence. So Paul kind of uses a run-on sentence. So if you're somebody who journals in your Bible, Bethany has this on the side of her Bible. It says 1 through 14 is a run-on sentence. It's all one sentence. Go to the first verse. It says, Paul. There's your author of the book of Ephesians. Now, Paul had a previous name. His name was? Saul. Saul was a scholar in everything Old Testament. So Saul was somebody who was super educated. He knew everything about Old Testament, about Judaism, all that stuff. And Paul, or Saul was a guy who persecuted the Christian church when it started to rise up. So we see all these people are getting saved and coming to know Jesus. They're confessing with their mouth and believing in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Saul wants nothing to do with it. This is after Jesus had come, had lived, had died, had rose again. And there's populations of people who are starting to essentially evangelize or share their faith. And so we see that Christianity is on the rise and Saul wants nothing to do with it. And so essentially what he does is he says, I'm going to put a stop to this. And it says in the Bible that there was a stoning of a man named Stephen, and Saul was standing there nodding his head in affirmation of the stoning of a Christian, holding the coats for people so that they could throw more accurately at Stephen, so his death would come a little quicker. So Jesus sees Saul and the persecution that he is, he is essentially um, participating in and he meets him on this road to Damascus. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, Saul, and it stops him dead in his tracks, like most of us who have encountered Christ. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? And, and Saul's dumbfounded. He's like, oh, no. <laughs> right? It's kind of like a kid who has been caught red-handed and in trouble. Right? Moms and dads, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you look at him, you're like, why'd you put your kid? Your hand in the cookie jar. There are no cookie jars anymore, Jordan. Anyway, okay, we have Tupperware now. This is Tupperware, all right? And Saul is struck blind, okay, because Jesus encountered him, and he changes his life, and God changes his name from Saul to Paul. Now, here's the craziest part of the whole situation with what's going on with Paul. People who are the disciples who follow Jesus for years take Saul, the one who persecuted the church, underneath their wing, and they bring him back, and they sit down with him, and they tell him everything that they know about Jesus, and Saul, who is now Paul, tells them everything he knows about Jesus in the Old Testament. And they enrich each other and they grow in their relationship together and the one who persecutes the church now is going to be the one to help populate it. And so verse 1, Paul who used to be Saul is going to go out and he's become a missionary where he plants church after church after church after church. He writes a letter to the Ephesians, which is why you have Uh, Ephesians, okay, he writes to a region called Ephesus, which is in Asia, and so what we see here is Paul's essentially realizing there are so many churches that are starting to pop up because of his ministries that he's been around with, especially with the disciples, and all these churches are kind of popping up, and so he writes specifically to Ephesus, but also to the surrounding churches in Asia, they would have received this letter. And in that town, there were so many things that were going on that manifested or showed the glory of God that was happening. There were miracles that were taking place there. There was great work that was being done there in the church. And Paul is writing for two reasons. One, he's encouraging them to eliminate false teachers from their presence. He says, you can't have people in here that are going to teach anything contradictory to the gospel that you have received. And if you jump forward in the Bible, in Revelation chapter 2, the Ephesian church is commended that they did that. They actually kept out the false teachers. So there's the first thing is that he he says, I want you to realize how important it is to teach sound doctrine. Same for Ephesus is still true today. It is important that the church... The one who has confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart Jesus Christ is Lord, a gathering of believers, those who have been set apart for the glory of Jesus Christ, come together so that we edify one another, build up the church so that we can evangelize, share our faith freely. Now what's happening here is, they're doing a good job of it, but something is happening. Paul's friends are all Jewish. But there's other people in this world called Gentiles, and those people, ready for this, are not Jews. You're welcome. And they're coming together, and essentially there's some disagreements that are happening because they do think Jews do things a certain way and Gentiles do things a certain way, and so we get into all these problems. And Paul says, I want you to be one because of the gospel that you have received. I want you to be one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul, back to the verse, an apostle, one who has seen Jesus with his eyes. That's what that means. By God's will, he's essentially saying this is the will of God that we continue to do these things to the saints. Now, if I were you, I would circle that word in your Bible. Because did you know that when you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, God calls you a saint. He says that you are a saint, One who has been set apart for a specific purpose. You are commanded as a believer to be different and to be distinct. And so to the church in Ephesus, I want you to know that you're set apart. To the church in Asia, I want you to know that you're going to be set apart. And to the church gathered at Community Gospel, you are to be set apart apart. Why? So you can be faithful in Jesus Christ. So Paul writes what they call his crown. This is the crown of his letters. If Paul wrote a bunch of letters, this one, man, this is key because what it does is it builds up the church to those gathered in Asia in Ephesus to keep out false teachers. Now, when we see this, okay, it's It's something that we have to really think about this morning because I wrote it this morning and I I really mean it. Ephesians chapter 1 is meant to encourage you. There's no condemnation here. There's nothing in here that you should leave and you should walk out and go, man, I just really feel convicted. If anything, Paul's desire in chapter 1 is that you would know who you are and know where you stand in the kingdom of God and how much he loves you and how much he lavishes, pours out his grace upon us. Let's pray that that happens today. God, encourage the church gathered at Community Gospel, as well as myself, based off of your word, may it enrich us and fill us, empower us, to know that it's possible to encourage one another and share our faith well. Help us to see who we are this morning, sons and daughters, kings and queens in your kingdom. Lord, speak in ways that I can't. Impress truths on hearts in ways that I can't. And may you be glorified with everything that we do here in the next few short moments we have together. Amen. You know what amen means? It means I agree. Or let it be so. I told my daughter that the other day. I said, do you know what amen means? She says, prayer's over. <clears throat> Still got work to do. Pray for me, alright? Alright. The wonderful grace of Jesus. I'm going to give you three things this morning on God's grace, okay? <clears throat> now, Paul writes with grace and peace, and we'll explain those in just a second, okay? Now, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing. Point here is, number one, write this down, God's blessing. Grace comes from God's blessing. There's two words that I want to highlight here in that passage. The first one is blessed in verse three, the very first word that you see. Some of you in your Bibles, it will say blessing. Bless, blessing, same thing, okay? What that means is, all right, is that God is full of glory. This is something that is done as an act where he is full of glory. Now go back to the grain bin, okay? If God's grace is a full grain bin, He has completely depleted the bin upon the church today and you, the disciples. Do you get that? Like, it's empty. I stood in an empty grain bin just last week, and I thought about it, and I was like, this is a picture of God's grace in our lives. That he has completely depleted his grace upon us. And let me tell you where we get that. Because beyond Jesus Christ, God cannot go any further in his His grace. He cannot give you any more than what he has already given you in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? That God has lavished upon us in this generation his wonderful grace. If you are an Old Testament prophet, okay, or if you were even a person living in the Old Testament, when we all get to heaven, okay, what a day of rejoicing that will be. The prophets of the old will look at us, the church, and they will say, you experienced the grace of God, the full grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They longed for those things in the Old Testament, and we look at them, and we're so kind of apathetic towards it, you know? And it says in the passage, not only are we blessed because of God, who's full of glory, has lavished upon us his grace, depleted what is in the tank, it gives you, are you ready for this? Every spiritual blessing. That means that you have in your life right now, at the current moment, everything you need to be mature in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is all at your fingertips and your disposal. And we should know this well, right? Because we have this thing called Google. And so if we don't know anything, we to grab to our phones, and you can't get in debates anymore. Did you notice that? Like you riding in the car with somebody, and you're like, man, I love this song. Yeah, uh, John Lennon wrote it. John Lennon didn't write that song. And you're like, yes, he did. Siri, who wrote this song? And there it is, pops up. No more debates. Not fair, right? Trivial pursuit, out the window. God has given you every, circle that in your Bible, spiritual blessing. He has gone the distance for you. You have everything that you need to be mature in a relationship with Christ. It is all at your fingertips. And I would go one step further and I would say it's all at the center of your heart. Now, this creates um, essentially some tension because what happens is we think to ourselves, okay, I have everything that I need, and if if you went because it's getting to be spring, it's kind of like you're standing at a dock, okay? And I don't know how many of you have ever done this, but you're standing at a dock, and you're going to get into the boat. Okay, Those of us who are younger, we're good at just kind of getting in the boat, right? Those of us who are older, it takes a little bit more. The older I get, the more I'm kind of like, whoa. All right, so there's a tension here because you came to know Jesus, you put your foot over here into the boat. Now you got one foot on the boat and one foot on the dock, right? And what happens is it creates a tension because we have our foot in a relationship with Jesus and we have been saved by him, we've been sanctified by him, we've been set apart, but we're still in this world. And so the Ephesian church is still living with the tension because they would have looked at Paul and they would have said, Paul, we understand God's grace. We understand that it's been lavished on us. We get that, Paul. We understand we have every spiritual blessing, but we're still living in this tension because we're still in the world. So what does that mean for us? Well, in James chapter 1, it says, in this world you will have trouble.'" In this world, you will have tension. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will struggle. This isn't going to be on the, uh, on the PowerPoint, but I want to give you something, okay? <clears throat> I got three things that struggle shows that somebody needs to hear this morning because I needed to hear it last week. Struggle, first and foremost, is a sign of your salvation. When we struggle as Christians, it is a sign that Jesus Christ has saved us. That means there's tension between you trying to get to maturity with Jesus Christ and being on the dock, which is the world which so easily entangles us. So you who have problems and who have issues and have things that are going on in your life, you should see that God has saved you. And that should secure the fact that you know his grace has been lavished upon us. Sometimes I just need to know that I'm saved, amen? I mean, I just need that in my life. Like I'm like, God, are you there? Are you listening? And he looks back at me based off of what Paul tells the Ephesian church. He says, because you struggle and have tension in your life, that means that I'm there and I'm working. James affirms it. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Struggle also, I saw was a sign that God was at work and is at work. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He is working for the good of those who love him. So first of all, I struggle, and second of all, I realize that God's at work in my struggles to show that I'm a child of the Most High God. If you look at that, he says, you're blessed because of these things. You have every spiritual blessing because of these things. So many of us look at trials and tribulations and we reject them, but the Christian welcomes them because what it does is it shows dependency upon God, but also shows security in the salvation that we have received. Third thing, struggle <clears throat> is validation that Scripture is true. When I struggle, it's a validation that this Bible works. People want to know if every word of God proves true. Well, every spiritual blessing means all of those things that I just told you. It means all of those things. It means that I'm going to struggle, but it's a sign of salvation. I'm going to struggle, but it's a sign of God's work. I'm going to struggle because it's validation that Scripture is true. Let me give you two passages of Scripture. They'll be up on the board. 2 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 4, verse 16. So we don't look at the troubles we can see right now, Rather, we look forward to what we have not seen. For the troubles we see will soon be over. The dock is, is not going to be where my foot is going to be planted forever. The boat is leaving. And so what God says is don't look at the tension that's here. Look at the promise that is to come. And the joys to come will last how long? Forever. Forever. It will be a joy to be fully lavished in the grace of God for an eternity. Let me give you another passage of scripture. Look at Colossians chapter 3. He says, since then, you, brothers and sisters, who have been raised with Christ. Now, Colossians is another letter that Paul wrote to Colossae, another town. And he says, set your hearts, even though you struggle, on the things above, the grace that you have received, the blessing that you have got from a God who is glorious, Where Christ is seated, you set your minds on the things above, not on the earthly things. In this world you will have trouble, you're going to have tension, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I have given you every spiritual blessing that you need. The question is, what is your perspective on? Is it on the fact that you have trials and troubles, or is it on the grace that you have received? Right? So, he says, In heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay. So you have blessing first and foremost. If you're a praying person, pray for me. These next two verses are tough and they're challenging and some people aren't going to like it. In verse 4, he says, God chooses to bless because of his grace. And the key word there that I would write down is God chose. He chose. And this messes with your theology sometimes. Number two, He chose. God's choice. Verse four. Okay. In this, we have what we call the doctrine of election. Doctrine is important. It's just thought, okay? It's, it's the way that we look at scripture and the way that we essentially look at theology and the way that God works. It's called doctrine of election. Bethany and I, our first fight as a dating couple was over the doctrine of election. You, you think I'm kidding? It was at... Um, it, it was at the lunch cafeteria at Grace, okay? And we started in the line, and people are realizing that, like, it's getting kind of tense. And me, being an idiot, looked at her, and I said, I said, that's, that's, there's no way, you know, like, God didn't choose people, Bethany. I get to choose. I don't know if you know this or not, but I have a choice. And she's like, she's like, Jordan, but, but, Ephesians says, and people are like starting to separate, we're getting our food and I'm getting even more mad and I'm putting my hot dog on the thing. And I'm, that's not true, that's not true. So we could have sat with our friends that day, but we had to go sit somewhere else and we had to like hash this thing out, okay? And she showed me the way. Because she's always right. <laughs> and after study, I realized that God did choose. It's very immature in my stance on this. And, and let me show you why, okay? I, I, I want you to see this, okay? <clears throat> the doctrine of election says that God chose. Now, choosing happens all the time in God's world. Some people don't like it because they look at it and they say, well, well hold on a second, don't we have free will? Yes, we do. But God also chooses because he's sovereign and he's also um, omnipotent and, and he's omniscient and he knows everything and all that other stuff. He chose Abraham, first and foremost, in the Old Testament. And we look at that and we say, well, I I don't really like that he chose Abraham. But he did. He chose specifically Abraham for a specific purpose. And then he chose the nation of Israel because he said, I love them. God's favorite people, look it up in the Bible, are the Jews. I'm not a Jew. I'm not God's favorite person. Are you kidding me? But it's, it's true. Like, God, first of all, chose the Jews. The Gentiles, you and I, are grafted into the family of God because of God's grace. And so God had a choice and God chose us based off of the cross. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'll put it up on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan before the beginning of time. A plan to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. There's the key word there grace. So God chose. Now we go back into the verse and it says, even as he chose in Christ before the foundations of the world, before Genesis was even penned, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's first choice when selecting individuals to be sanctified or set apart for his glory would be that they would be blameless because of Christ's death and resurrection. Now, a lot of people will approach this and they'll say, wait, hold on a second. Why did God choose me? Let me ask you a better question. Why did God choose any of us? I mean, have you ever thought about that? It's not why did God choose me? Why did God choose any of us? The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed The mark or the standard that God set for us, why would he even have the grace to give to me as a sinful human being? See, I think we miss the mark when it comes to the doctrine of election because it's not why would God choose, it's no, 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 why would God choose me? And the reason that God would choose you, you ready for this? Is his grace. That it was given to you before the foundations of the world. That you would be set apart and blameless, it says. Now, A.W. Tozer, who's an old guy, and he he has a great quote on this. Jeff's gonna throw it up on the screen because, man, I I love this. I think this is so critical and huge. You can read along with me. Salvation from the human side is us having a choice. But from the divine side, which would be God's side, it's a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest by the Most High God, And so our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God. And so here we live in this tension that God would choose us. So there's two parts. There's God's choice, part A, and then God's adoption, part B. We'll get there in just a second. Don't go there yet. But in the choice that God made we need to realize that God chose us. His blood that was shed on the cross was sufficient for the whole entire world, but it was only efficient for those that would believe in him. He says, I am going to essentially start the process of adoption here, and I'm going to move the papers across the table and give you the choice. Because I already chose you. And let me tell you something. I, I, I don't know how that all works. I just know that it works. And you have an opportunity on the table because of God's choice. You have to either accept it or reject it. And again, these aren't in your outline, but here's some of the things that come from that. You have to accept, first of all, that God chose you to be holy and blameless. Secondly, you have to accept the fact that you were on God's mind before the creation of the world. You have to, third, realize that God did that for a purpose, and he has a purpose for your life. He has a purpose for your existence, for the fact that you're alive right now in this place. And fourth, he did it as an act of love. Look at Romans chapter 8. I'll throw it up on the screen. He says in Paul's letter to the Romans... For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, oh, that's a dirty word, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among your brothers. Okay, so part A is God's choice. Number three in your outline is God's adoption, which is the revelation of his grace. Now, a lot of people want to sit here and they want to argue with me about the fact whether God chose or God didn't choose. You have to look at the text and understand that that's the Word of God. In other words, Scripture is not on the table for you to use it as justification. It's on the table for you to use as confirmation and conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. You don't get to the Bible and say, hmm, I don't like that and just remove it. Either you accept the whole thing or you accept none of it. You don't get to pick and choose the verses that make you feel good. You have to take the passages of Scripture and put them in your heart and say, God, I don't get this fully, but I understand it's for my good. The passage in Romans 8 is true, that God is working for the good of those who love him. So, go back to it. God chose, he starts writing the adoption papers, he pushes them across the table. Look at the passage. It says, he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ because it was the purpose of His will. I don't think that Paul is writing here so that we would have a theological debate on whether or not God chose us. Paul would say, no, God did choose us. The question is, have you chosen the mighty God? And have you chosen a relationship with His Son? Predestined means... You were marked out beforehand that you were on God's mind. And so Christ, in his holiness, he says, I'm going to die on the cross for the sins of the world, not just the sins of a select few. He says, all of them. Don't minimize Christ's death on the cross and say, well, he just died for the elect. That's garbage, and that's bad theology. Christ died for the sins of the world. It was sufficient for those who would believe. But it's only efficient if you take the pen and say, I believe this, and you sign the adoption papers, and you say, I want to be in your family. Now, I understand this because I'm adopted. I get it. Like, to me, that makes total sense. It took years for me to realize what my dad offered to me. Years. He just kept lavishing on my family, his grace, and just... He, he, he didn't come to the marriage and stand up there and he was like, he's like, you know what, Denise, I love you. Your kid's questionable. <laughs> you know, he, like, he didn't do that. He says, I will take you in your sinful state and your kids, especially Jordan in his sinful state, okay? And it's, it's true. Don't worry about it. I'm not offended. And he says, and, and I will provide for your needs. I will take you home he didn't just have the wedding and then send us off to another location. He had the wedding and took us home and provided for us and and gave us everything that he had. Everything that he had was ours, even the little pug dog, right? I mean, some things that we didn't even want. I'm like, what's this thing doing, right? He says, I lavish upon you grace upon grace. There is nothing that my mom could have done to... To receive his grace, he just had to give it. Now, my, my buddy Mark, he, he's adopted two kids. Um, and it's funny because, um, <clears throat> anyway, it, it's, it's funny because my, my buddy Mark's white, okay? And the kids he adopted is black. But you would have no idea by the way they operate. Like, it, the colors blur sometimes. Because sometimes I think his adopted kids act better than his, his, his other kids. Don't tell him that, okay? <clears throat> um, but we, we go to his house, and this is awesome. What happens is with Mark, okay? is he brings his kids in, right? And, and, he has, and his kids have realized, his, his, his biological children have realized that this is dad and this is what dad gives, right? And then every time he brought in an, a, a child who was adopted, he brought them into the family and he says, listen, whatever is true for Canaan is true for you. And whatever is true for Malachi now is true for you. That's what God does for us. He loved the Jews first and foremost, and he set them apart to be a nation that was going to be holy and blameless, and they, they, they dropped the ball. And so what he says is, he says, what was true for the Jews because of the death of Jesus Christ is true for you. The adoption papers are on the table, and I'm going to slide them over to you, and now you have the opportunity, not an obligation, of whom you will serve. And we look at it, and we're like, I'm doing fine by myself. He's like, how's that working out for you? If you go back to the passage, he specifically says here, Paul says, as adoption through sons of Jesus Christ, that was his purpose and his will. You are predestined for adoption. The question is, do you want to accept the adoption? Look at um, what Hebrews chapter 2 says. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, put it up on the screen for you. He specifically says here, For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's God the Creator, in bringing many sons to glory, you and I, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What's suffering? Tension. Tension that it is perfection, that it's validation that this is true. It's validation that you are on his mind. It's validation that you were set up so that you would be saved in Christ. In adoption, you have fellowship with God. And the crazy thing is, I I can't explain it because I don't know how it works. Yes, we have a choice and God chose And you know what? Some things I just can't explain. I just have to take Scripture at its word because I see its work in life. And so in adoption, I realized that I, when I confessed with my mouth and believed in my heart that Jesus Christ was Lord, I I said, yes, I I signed that, and now I want to be in a relationship and fellowship with you, that I was lost, dead in my sin, and, and I want to be saved. I want to enter into your kingdom. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27. I'll put that up on screen too. He did this to present the church, you and I, as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she, the church, will be holding and without fault because of the grace that was given to us. <clears throat> now, here's the kicker, okay? If you study this passage on your own, you're going you're gonna to reach the illustration that talks about a judge. And, and the, the illustration's good, but it falls short. Here's the illustration. It says essentially that you're driving down 331, okay? And one of our fellow police officers pulls you over because there's so many of you in our population right now, okay? And before you throw the community gospel church card on the table, you're like, hey, <laughs> I know you. All right. I don't know what some of you think, okay? You throw the, you look at them, and they, they're like, hey, whew, eighty-nine in a fifty-five <laughs> you're flying right and you look at them and you're like yeah they take your license and registration and they come back and they run it you're sitting there thinking to yourself you're gonna find out that I stole pencils in kindergarten oh my goodness and they come back and they're like hey I gotta take you in and they're like "What?" you're like what like, yeah I gotta take you in you just gotta uh, you have a list of offenses but let me tell you something the judge if, if you maybe plea for forgiveness, the judge will have some grace upon you. So you're like, all right, so they set your court date or whatever. And it comes to be your court date. And you walk in, and you've got chains on, you know, because everybody thinks you're a hard criminal. And you walk up, and, and you're standing in front, and here's the judge standing right there. And the judge looks at you, and, and you're standing here like this. And they're like, wow, you were going really fast. You're like, yeah, I know. Wow, like you, you've done a lot of stuff, you know. Like, I mean, they start, you know, they pull out the paper and, just, you know, and he could just see your life, like right there. And the illustration is that the judge forgives you, and that's where the illustration stops. The illustration says that the judge looks at you and says, "You know what? I, I, let him go. Go ahead and, and and go." But here's where the illustration falls crazy short that's not God's grace God's grace is that God is the judge we're in chains which are sin and we're standing there and the rap sheet is present of everything that's going on in our life and God doesn't just forgive us of our sins he gets up off of the bench he looks at the person who's who's there and he says cancel all my calls Put them for another date. He says, would you follow me for a second? And you have a choice in that matter of if you will follow that judge. And you, who are a slave, say, yeah, man, why not? Like, okay, let's go. And you willingly go. He says, you can go free, but would you come with me? I want to show you something. You're like, yeah. And so the judge says, okay, come on. You go out to the parking lot, and he with his car and he opens up the door and he says, I'm going to let you sit in the driver's seat. You don't have to sit in the back of a cop car like you were just in. He says, no, I'm going to put you in the front seat and you start driving down that road and you start conversing with this judge and see who he is and the fact that he's kind-hearted and that that he is he is somebody who's loving and he's just going on with your life and you are just kind of start pouring out everything that's been going on. You're like, I don't know, I've just been in so much pain and, and hurt and there's so much tension in my life and I, I just can't seem to take it. And he puts his hand on your shoulder and he says everything is going to be okay and you see the gate and he leans over because he knows the code and he punches in the code and the gate swings open and he looks at you and He says you sure about this you're like you're like I have nothing else and so he continues up to the, the, the fence and he gets to the front door and he looks at you, and he pulls out of his pocket his keys, and he puts them in your hand, and he says, everything that I have is yours. And he walks away and leaves you at the door, and here you are with the keys in your hand to the judge's house, and he says, it's all yours. You have every spiritual blessing that you need. And you take the keys and it's your choice. Do you accept it and believe it and open the door and realize the lavish of grace that has been poured upon you? Or do you turn around and walk away and go back to your own ways? That's Ephesians 1. Is that God has led you to a place. He has signed the paperwork. He's put the keys in your hand and he says everything you need is at your fingertips because i love you and i care about you and i've lavished my grace upon you i cannot go any further for you than the death and resurrection and offering of salvation in jesus christ it's amazing and he turns around and he says hey one last thing and he pulls out his phone and gives it to you he says if you need anything, you can call me too, by the way. That's only part one. I'll give you the next, next week. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, how amazing it is to be lavished with your grace. That that's who we are. We are your sons and your daughters. You had us on your mind before the creation of the world. I'm blown away that you love me even with my sin even with the tension that I have in my life and the fact that sometimes I want to take my foot off the boat and put it back on the dock. And I know there's so many people here, God, who are in the same frame of mind, that they're struggling and there's, there's things that are going on in their life and they're, they're hurting and there's, there's tension. And would you, in a way that I can't, because I believe that you can, would you speak and impress upon their hearts the truths that are coming from Ephesians? that we are blessed by you, that you chose us, you want a relationship with us, that you have granted us adoption. And if anybody who's far from you, who has never received the gift of that grace, would they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart today that they can be your child? They don't have to walk alone anymore, they don't have to walk by themselves, the keys are in their hands. And God, would you realize and, and help us realize, for, for us here in this place, what it means to be adopted by the Most High God. That you have lavished your grace upon us. What a crazy truth. And help us to live that way. And here's, church, what I want you to wrestle with this week. How do you respond to the grace that has been given to you? God, help us not be apathetic, God, help us not to be dismissive. Help us not to be passive. May our lives be a representation for you. May we worship you with everything, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. May we love you. May our lives be a praise for the things that you have done for us. May we be distinct, set apart, holy, blameless, so that we can build up those who are already found and so that we can evangelize and share our faith with those who are lost. Give us the ability to be bold in our evangelism so that those far from you would come to know you and so that your church would continue to increase. Help us to know it's worth it. The fight is worth it. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. And it's in your holy name that we pray. All God's people said, amen.